You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Stephen D. King, who is a senior economic advisor at HSBC, the bank, and also a journalist and the author of many books. Most recent book is called, We Need to Talk About Inflation. I don't know if that's how you say it. 14 Urgent Lessons from the Last 2,000 Years. A couple other books, Losing Control, Emerging Threats to Western Prosperity, When the Money Runs Out, The End of Western Affluence, and Grave New World, End of Globalization and Return to History. Stephen, these are some books that I think are designed to kind of scare people <laughs> a little bit. What's well, my name, really? I can't help it, can I? So Stephen King. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like the other type of horror of fiction over here. But these are not fiction. This is nonfiction. And in this book... These are all actual horrors. Yeah. Yeah. In this book, we need to talk about in- inflation. I think the purpose of the book is, in many ways, it's a reminder, right? It's a reminder that we have not escaped. We've not achieved escape velocity from the sorts of economic rules that have governed economic behavior for a long time. And I think there was a time when people thought that we had figured out economic cycles, right? The great moderation, central bankers had it figured out, finance professors had it figured out, and then the global financial crisis hit and we realized that we hadn't really figured it out. And it seems like there's a similar type of, I don't know, it's historical amnesia that took place in recent years where we had convinced ourselves that we had figured out inflation, that we had solved the inflation problem. So is this sort of a repetition of that story, right? The hubris of our elites, the economic and academic and policymaking elites. Is that really a big part of the story? It is. I think that each of us is a sort of, we're a child of our time, aren't we? We've been influenced by what we experienced when we grew up. And I'm thinking back here to the policymakers who were active in the 1950s and 1960s. And of course, they were particularly focused on the defeat of unemployment because, of course, anyone who was a policymaker in the 50s and 60s was probably having their formative years in the 1930s during the Depression. So that was the big thing that everyone focused on. And when inflation came along at the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s, it took everyone by surprise didn't appear to be part of the sort of things that should be happening in those circumstances. And then after the great inflation of the 1970s and early 1980s, there was this sense that somehow we'd learned our lessons, that we'd got rid of this problem to such an extent that a lot of policymakers, and I would say a lot of central bankers, began to believe their own rhetoric, their own propaganda, and said to themselves, look, we've had long periods of price stability. We can even build our econometric models to suggest that will continue into the future. And so when inflation picked up, I think, frankly, it came as an enormous surprise. And it was very easy, of course, initially for policymakers to say it's all transitory, it's temporary, it'll just go away as quickly as it had arrived. And yet here we are in later 2023, with inflation higher in most places than people had anticipated. There are one or two exceptions like China, but for the most part, inflation is higher. But also the costs of defeating it are much greater than people had anticipated to the extent that interest rates 
the cost of borrowing is much higher than people had anticipated. Frankly, life is very different from what people would have thought four or five years ago. And I would suggest that there was a sort of habit that I would say central bankers themselves got into, which is to look at the Japanese experience from the sort of 1990s onwards, this sort of period of very low growth, persistent deflationary pressures, a sense of prices falling rather than rising, interest rates stuck at zero, no obvious way out. And people looked at Japan and said, we've got parallels. We've got aging populations in the West. We've got very high levels of government debt. All these kinds of things seem to be similar to Japan. It, it was naturalizing for a lot of policymakers to think, this is the problem. We've got the Japanese-style problem. It's about deflation rather than inflation. Inflation is yesterday's problem. So when it came along, I think it really came along as a real, really huge shock, frankly. And it seems like on the one hand, we've got inflation. On the other hand, we've got deflation. And if you are going to put a policy in place, then the kind of response function is going to be controlled in part by which one you think is the bigger threat, which one you think has a higher probability of occurring, and also which one has the kind of worst consequences. You know, it's kind of like how sensitive do you want your smoke detector to be? And with respect to inflation, do you think that we collectively have forgotten about the adverse consequences of it because it's been so long? Look, I remember it. You remember it as a child. I remember I used to have this thing, the whip inflation now button that I used to, I was given by Gerald Ford himself, right? At an event and I could put on my jacket, right? But a lot of people, you know, they haven't experienced it. So have we forgotten about the adverse consequences of inflation? I, I think we have. And I think one reason for this is that with the advent of central banks becoming independent, politically independent, I think there was a habit of thinking that inflation was a kind of technical problem. It was a technical challenge for central banks, but not really a political challenge in any significant way. But actually, I think Inflation is a huge political challenge, and that's the thing that we've forgotten about. The first very simple point is you've got to decide when inflation's picking up how serious it is and how much work you have to do to try and get rid of it. Because it, unfortunately, most of the evidence in terms of getting rid of inflation is that doing so is pretty painful. It's either tied to fiscal policy in the form of higher taxes or cutbacks in public spending. Or more recently, it's all about higher interest rates and the threat of recession. So you don't want that. So you tend to think, let's hope that the inflation is temporary rather than anything more than that. But also, once inflation becomes established, it becomes something which corrodes trust in society. Because we don't have societies where prices are perfectly indexed. In other words, that prices, wages, rents, everything goes up at exactly the same pace at exactly the same time. So inflation tends to create a world of both winners and losers. And it's a profoundly undemocratic process in that sense, because that process of creating winners and losers is pretty arbitrary. But of course, the problem there is that if you happen to be a loser initially, you're going to want to push for your own wage increase or your own price increase later on, because your next door neighbor has already had one of those and you're waiting for your turn. So when you try to stop inflation, you are effectively trying to stop it when some people have already perhaps benefited from it. Other people feel quite rightly, quite justifiably that they haven't. The fact they're actually worse off in some sense. So stopping it once it's started 
becomes a lot more difficult. Now, to be fair, experiences in different parts of the world have varied. The US to date has been more successful in bringing inflation lower than is true of some European countries, particularly my own country, the UK. But even in the US, you have what appears to be a pretty tight labor market, what appears to be an economy that's operating at full capacity, where core inflation, so this strips out the sort of volatile bits and pieces, and you focus on the underlying pressures, core inflation is more elevated than the Federal Reserve would like. And in these circumstances, and we haven't been here for a very long time, the risk, I think, is that inflation would move higher rather than simply move back down to 2 2.5%, which is where it's supposed to be over the medium term. So wherever you look, maybe with the exception of China, you have this problem whereby in the recent past, in previous decades, inflation struggled to be at 2% or above. And now it's struggling to be down to 2% or below. It's a sort of different kind of mindset to the mindset we had lived through, particularly in the years of the global financial crisis. So it's a much more complicated world. And the evidence, not just from the recent past, but also from hundreds and hundreds of years, is that because inflation does create winners and losers, it's something which is, frankly, pretty toxic. And I think we've forgotten about that by turning it into a technical problem rather than a political problem. Yeah, I was wondering if you could go into those uh, costs, right? Because, look, if we went to bed at night and everything had a particular price and we woke up the next day and everything was repriced, right, that wouldn't be as big of a problem as what we get when inflation happens in its sort of natural unwinding. So economists will typically split things into two, right? They'll talk about shrinking the pie and then transferring the pie from one party to another. And it seems like both of them are undesirable. With respect to the transfer piece, you talk about this guy, Hugo Dieter Stinnes. I, I thought that was a fascinating story. I didn't know about this guy, but I guess every bout of inflation creates folks like that, folks who can win from this, right? And so it's, it's not just sort of existing debtors who benefit, but it's folks who can anticipate what's happening and then lever up and benefit from becoming like debtors or like hyper debtors. Is the modern equivalent of that sort of our, the Stephen Schwartzmans of the world, you know, the private equity folks that have just levered up like crazy in the last couple of decades? Well, just in case people don't know, Stinnis was this guy who, a German businessman who made a lot of money during World War One, but that was only the beginnings of the money he made during the hyperinflation under the Weimar Republic in the early 1920s. And effectively, he was an international businessman who was able to borrow cheaply in foreign currency to buy up German assets, which of course were receptively rising in value thanks to the hyperinflation. So basically, being able to borrow cheaply and to invest when everyone else was going bust, but he accumulated vast amounts of assets and became super, super rich, not just in by German standards, but by, by global standards in the early 1920s. So even as the Weimar economy was on a state of collapse and many people were losing out hugely. For example, if you owned a property which was typically subject to rent controls, but at the same time, the maintenance costs of the property were rapidly rising as a consequence of the hyperinflation, you were likely to go bust very quickly indeed, because there's no way you could allow your rents to rise quickly enough to keep up with the maintenance you'd required for the property. Yeah, these are good examples of where things go wrong extremely quickly. But yeah, in today's terms, there are certain groups who will have won. I mean, if you've got 
rapidly rising financial asset prices during a period of inflation, then if you happen to have exposure to those, you might do pretty well in those circumstances. Another potential beneficiary, not always, but potential beneficiary is government, because governments have very large amounts of debt. And the history of inflation often is that governments or kings and queens and emperors or whoever was in charge at the time, these people have an incentive to create a bit of inflation because the inflation effectively redistributes wealth from creditors to debtors. If the government happens to be a big debtor, inflation is a way of imposing taxes on people with cash savings. So not necessarily the wealthiest, but those whose wealth is in the form of cash savings. So often some of the poorer people in society get robbed through the process of inflation because they're not protected against it. And in those circumstances, the government deals with its fiscal problems by effectively imposing a hidden inflation tax on people in society. There are other issues that crop up. One of them is that Adam Smith, the author of The Wealth of Nations, the first great economist, in fact, some people would say the greatest of all economists, Adam Smith talked about the idea of the invisible hand, the price mechanism. And the idea was that we see prices in the shops, prices in factories and whatever, and we can all make decisions based on the price movements because each of those price movements reveals something about relative shortages and relative increases in demand and so on. And we all respond to that all the time. So this is the invisible hand, marvelous secret way in which we allocate resources. But the problem with periods of inflation is that often inflation is quite volatile. It's high one year, lower the next year, then high again the following year. So you're not quite sure as to the price movement when you're seeing it. Is it a true indication of relative shortage or excess in a particular market? Or is it just an indication that inflation itself is relatively high? And I think one useful way of thinking about this is that inflation, once it's established, is really a process that destroys the value of cash. That's probably the simplest way of, of thinking about it, that if you've got cash in your pocket, that's a dollar bill or a pound sterling or whatever it might be, if you've got cash in your pocket in a period of inflation, that cash is going to be worth less and less over time. So you need to find a way to, to protect yourself in those circumstances. But at the same time, if you're not sure as to whether a movement in prices is a genuine reflection of a loss of value of money, or instead, whether it's a, a shortage of one particular kind of worker or one particular good, then you start making mistakes. And one way you can put this is that the businesses in particular find it very difficult to plan for the future. They don't know what's going to happen to their revenues and at the same time their costs. They're unsure as to what the measuring rod is in terms of inflation and money. Then they become more cautious in what they do. So what you often find during periods of inflation is that although the inflation might start off from a period of excess demand, Inflation actually damages the economy's supply potential. In other words, you don't invest as much. The underlying growth rate of the economy is lower. And this actually was a lesson we got from the 1970s, really, because in the 1970s, you had this strange combination of high inflation, volatile inflation. But at the same time, the growth rates of economies were lower than they had been in real terms. Too much inflation, too little growth became known as stagflation. But it was a reflection, I think, of these profound uncertainties that are created as a consequence. Um, of these volatile price movements. You talk also about some of the kind of misallocations that take place because people are trying to hoard things that they expect to keep up with inflation and to dump things that they expect to deteriorate in, in value. Yes, one example, this actually came from a friend of mine, a good Turkish friend of mine, who was describing events in Istanbul in the 1990s and stories of wholesalers hoarding 
washing machines and so on. Not because they wanted lots of washing machines, but because a washing machine held its value better than Turkish lira. So you can get rid of your lira as fast as possible and store your wealth in the form of a washing machine instead. This was actually quite a good deal. And then you also had people who wanted to take their money offshore. They wanted to get it out of Turkey because they'd rather swap it into dollars or euro. Well, it wouldn't be euros back then, but Deutschmarks or sterling or something. But because of exchange controls, which the government had imposed to try to protect the currency, they were unable to do it. So what they did instead was to import goods, which effectively had foreign currency value. There was one example of an importer of BMWs and Mercedes who imported far more than was required in terms of demand within Turkey. But it was a good way of effectively protecting his savings because he converted his Turkish lira into BMWs and into Mercedes. I suspect in some cases today, Rolex watches could serve the same sort of purpose. But when you really lose trust and faith in the currency, really peculiar things start to happen. Now, to be fair, yeah, we're not in those circumstances in the US or in Europe at the moment. Your inflation rates are much lower. But nevertheless, they're high enough to suggest that the, you start to see the beginnings of distortions of one kind or another. Yeah, I took a bunch of my MBA students to Argentina and to Chile back to back. And I had a bunch of students say to me, I finally understood macroeconomics after visiting two countries, right? Yeah. Argentina currently has a terrible inflation performance and has had a terrible inflation performance for on and off for many years, actually many decades, frankly. And actually, in some cases, the poor inflation performance often is a consequence of political and, if you like, demographic realities in certain countries. In Argentina's case, and this kicks off really the 19th century, but you have a huge influx of Italian and Spanish immigrants that come to Argentina, often very poor, not much in the way of savings. And therefore, there's, there isn't a, so if you like, a, a strong stock of savings to invest for the future. So what happens is that Argentina, to get savings, has to raise them from elsewhere in the world. But that immediately means that your creditor is outside Argentina, your debtor is inside Argentina, the debtor votes in elections, the creditor does not vote in elections. So the creditor is always at risk. And one way that the creditor can be at risk is that you lend Argentina money and then discover that you get it repaid in devalued pesos, which is not necessarily what you wanted. But yeah, I mean, that there's quite a few examples around the world of countries that for one reason or another have had a very high inflation rate, often associated with a lack of domestic savings. Um, and process by which you try to find a way of defaulting to your foreign creditor. But it typically doesn't end well for you either, because too much inflation, again, damages the fabric of society. If we might underestimate the negative impact of inflation, have we overestimated the negative impact of deflation? Right? You talk a bit about good deflation. You know, we had a lot of deflation after the Civil War. And of course, this was not great for debtors, right? So in particular, you talk about how the South was a debtor region and we didn't really have a lot of sympathy for them. So, you know, they didn't have much say in, in the matter. But is deflation as bad as we, we make it out to be? Well, it certainly can be, but it depends on the circumstances. So the reason why we have this sort of toxic fear of deflation is it's entirely understandable. It all comes from the 1930s during the debt deflation period when you, know, you had shocking rates of unemployment in the US, mass bankruptcies, mass bank failures. And you got into this deflation trap whereby prices were falling rapidly, which meant that real interest rates, the real cost of borrowing was rising rapidly. 
which led to more and more bankruptcy, which led to more falls in prices, and the whole thing became a totally vicious circle. So the 1930s story tells you whatever you must do, you absolutely must avoid deflation at all costs. But it is a peculiar kind of deflation. And the reason for saying that is that we have a very good uh, alternative example of deflation, which is in the late 19th century. You've already used the example of you know, the sort of post-Civil War experience in the US, but deflation around the world in the late 19th century. But unlike the 1930s, there's absolutely no real evidence of any kind of economic crisis of the kind that we saw in the 1930s. So the question is, why? What's the difference? The difference really is this, that in the late 19th century, the convention for many countries, increasing number of countries, is to be on the gold standard. Effectively, it was a way of controlling monetary expansion. And it effectively meant that the amount of money that was in circulation in the economy depended on how much gold that economy had. And because gold was pretty much in fixed supply, you couldn't increase the supply very quickly. There was effectively a finite amount of money itself in circulation. Now, in the late 19th century, of course, it was a period of tremendous economic advance, huge technological changes. The Industrial Revolution spread throughout much of the world. So economic activity was rising extremely quickly. But at the same time, money couldn't expand in line with that increase in economic activity. So what had to give in these circumstances was prices. Effectively, prices had to fall to offset the monetary shortage alongside the huge increase in the volume of economic activity. Now, this is what I call a good deflation because effectively prices were falling relative to wages and relative to profit. So in real terms, people were better off. So effectively what they were buying in the shops were just getting cheaper and cheaper. And that was pretty good news. Now, the issue over the last 20 or 30 years is that first of all, even in Japan, we've not really had the kind of 1930s type deflation. You haven't had a sort of downward spiral in economic activity of the kind that happened particularly in the US in the 1930s. And elsewhere, I would suggest that much of the deflationary pressure that we saw was really a reflection of globalization. And in particular, the fact that huge numbers of Chinese and Indians and so on entered the global workforce or became connected with the rest of the world. And in effect, for the US, for Canada, for Europe, we were suddenly able to import goods at lower and lower prices. Effectively, you've seen a bunch of outsourcing and offshoring. The production was going elsewhere to where labor costs were lower. And as consumers, we were able to benefit from lower prices for a whole range of things that would otherwise be the case. Now, that strikes me as being closer to the kind of good deflation of the 19th century than the bad deflation of the 1930s. But importantly, central bankers were mostly under pressure to hit a particular inflation target. In other words, if prices that were being imported were coming down quickly, but you still had to hit a 2% inflation target, whatever it was, you basically had to offset imported deflation by creating inflation domestically, which is another way of saying that monetary conditions were unusually loose. And actually, one consequence of that during this earlier period was financial bubbles, because if you've got very low interest rates, and you're trying to stimulate domestic activity to offset these imported deflationary pressures, effectively, your real cost of borrowing is too low. And so you end up with a bubble in Asia in the mid-1990s. You end up with the tech bubble in the US in the late 1990s. You end up with the housing bubble in the period before the global financial crisis. A lot of these, I think, are partly related to this sort of sense that deflation is so terrifying, you must do all we can possibly do to fight it off. 
Um, but all that happened, I think, was that you ended up with excessively loose monetary conditions and the kind of financial bubbles that they're good while they last, but they also give you a terrible hangover afterwards. So to be clear, when the central banks are doing inflation targeting, they're focusing on consumer prices, right? They're focusing on the price of flows, not the price of stock, right? So they're not looking at asset prices. Is there an alternative policy world that could have happened in the last 20 years where we had this good deflation in the absence of large-scale asset price inflation? So there are two ways you can think about this. One way to say, actually, you need to put asset prices into your measure of inflation. I, I think it's a little bit tricky because that means that central bankers have to make a sort of decision that one says market should be making. How valuable is this particular asset? How valuable is this stock? How valuable is this stock market? And I'm not sure that central bankers should be in the position of nationalizing or controlling these markets in quite that way. I begin to feel a little uneasy when I hear these kinds of arguments say we've got to look at every asset price and chuck it into the measure of inflation. There's an alternative, though, which could have been used, which is to say, okay, we've got an inflation target of, say, 2%. We're aware that you can have good deflation. We know this from the 19th century. We're not terrified of deflation in all circumstances. And actually, we as a central bank believe that current conditions are such that it would be perfectly reasonable to undershoot the inflation target for a period of time, and that you, the consumer, can be a beneficiary of this because it means that prices generally will rise less rapidly than would otherwise be the case relative to your wages, and therefore you are potentially better off. It would be useful to have moved away from the precision of saying you have to hit the inflation target each and every single year. If you span a narrative, a useful narrative, not a sort of made-up narrative, but if you span a narrative that said, Actually, we're in a period of global deflation, therefore it makes no sense for us to try to push inflation higher domestically. We're going to live with it. It's not going to do any damage to us at all. Then I think that would be perfectly reasonable. And it would have avoided some of the financial bubbles that we experienced, because I think that some of them have their roots, not all of them, but some of them have their roots in part in being encouraged by the policymakers themselves. Now, is the central bank policy, is this a political economy story, or is it really a story of models and ideologies. What's driving the central bankers? So you come back to the sort of technocratic story, I suppose, that if you really believe that inflation is just a case of pulling a few levers here and there and you get the right answer, then it looks like a technocratic story. But I think that it's moved on from that because particularly during the pandemic and afterwards, central bankers became quite defensive when inflation did start to pick up. It was initially useful for them to say, well, we're an institution whose job it is to control inflation. Inflation isn't under control at the moment, but it can't possibly be our fault. So it must be just a series of external shocks, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, which I think is, is a feature of many institutions. It's not about central banks specifically. We all become defensive when we're in this institution and things are going wrong. Every institution employs PR people to try to protect themselves in these circumstances. So you can understand why they got into that position. But where we are now is potentially awkward. Maybe less so for the US because the Federal Reserve has been independent for quite a long time. But let me take the example of my own country, the UK. So the Bank of England was granted independence in 1997. This was after inflation had been largely defeated. So in other words, the bank becomes independent. It inherits a very good inflationary story. And for 23 years or so, the inflation story remains very good. So it looks like the bank is doing a great job. But let's imagine that the Bank of England be made independent not in 1997, but instead in 1979 at the height of Britain's terrible inflation performance. Now, we know what happened in the first half of the 1980s, that 
Margaret Thatcher and her colleagues effectively imposed a huge recession on the UK. She was deeply unpopular at times, but importantly, she was re-elected in 1983. So she could say, okay, some of you don't like me, but I've been re-elected, and therefore I can demonstrate some level of political legitimacy for the policies that I've pursued, no matter how painful they were and how damaging they were to, to some regions in the country. An independent central bank, independent Bank of England, would really struggle to demonstrate that level of legitimacy. In other words, if it had delivered the same kind of economic outcome, and there'd been a huge increase in unemployment, and there'd been regional awfulness that came through of the kind that we saw in the first half of the 1980s, how could these technocrats say, don't worry, we're listening to the people, we know that we, we have support from them? Because I don't think they could. So you come back to this issue that when inflation is low and stable, and of course it looks easy for the central bank to do a good job, and it appears to be doing a good job, but when the inflation itself begins to run out of control and to do things that you weren't expecting, then I think the legitimacy of the central bank as an independent institution is called into question. In fact, even I would say the Federal Reserve, although it has been nominally independent all the way through, its behavior has depended in part on what is acceptable within the population at any particular point in time. In the book, I refer to Paul Volcker and his view of what happened in the 1980s, but also I look at Arthur F. Burns' view in the 1970s. And what's striking about the two of them is that Volcker kind of says, look, I was lucky. I arrived at just the point when people have finally realized that defeating inflation was a necessary precondition of other measures of economic success. So I had the people behind me. I knew I had to tackle this inflation problem and I got on with it, and I, I really did tackle it, and I imposed a huge amount of pain on the US. But within three or four years, the economy is recovering strongly. And after eight or nine years in, in the hot seat, I can at least demonstrate that the policy worked. Arthur F. Burns said, well, actually, during my time, and I think there was a bit of ex-post rationalization, perhaps, but during his time, the argument was, I couldn't have done what central bankers might have done latterly, because the people didn't realize it was important. People didn't understand that inflation was a problem. They would never have supported us if we'd raised interest rates and thrown the economy into a deep recession. We wouldn't have had support from the White House. We wouldn't have support from Congress. Although we were independent, our independence does, it is basically contingent on the political state at any particular point in time. So what Volcker could do, Arthur F. Burns could not do, even though effectively the institution supposedly was independent throughout. So this is partly about ideas and what is politically acceptable at any particular point in time. In the book, you know, you go back in time. There's a lot of history in the book. And, you know, you remind us that folks like Locke and Hume and Newton and even Copernicus, they were thinking about macroeconomics. So they were thinking about money. And you remind us of the Fisher equation, right? MV equals PQ. And the idea is that you've got the money supply, but you also have expectations, right? And they both play a role. And, and the history of macroeconomics is really a history of changing emphasis where some people say it's the M that's important. Others say, oh, it's the V that's important. Do, do you think that this contemporary kind of macroeconomists or central bankers, do they overestimate the degree of control they have over M? Do they overestimate the degree of control they have over V? Or do they maybe misunderstand the importance of the two variables. So first of all, what I think is odd is that most central bankers stop talking about money altogether. 
certainly true that the relationship between money, however you define it, and the economy has never been as secure as militarists themselves would have said. But to say it's not secure doesn't mean to say it's not important. And what I think is striking is that if you go back to the early months of the pandemic and look at what happened to money supply in the US and to a lesser degree in the UK and the Eurozone, it kind of went off the charts. It expanded at a pace that we haven't seen really at any point in the entire post-Second World War period. So this was unusual. And if I'd been a policymaker, I would have, I think I would have been raising a red flag saying, I'm not sure exactly what it means, but I think it might mean something and we should be cognizant of it. And certainly the history of inflation would suggest you should be cognizant of it because periods of inflation are often associated with sudden increases in money supply, whether it's the Spanish discovering silver in Bolivia and shipping it back to Europe in the early years of the conquistadors, or whether it's monetary experiments during the French Revolution. They're all examples of where you fiddle around with money and you end up with outcomes you weren't necessarily expecting. But actually, the other thing, and I think this is frankly difficult for central bankers to get their heads around because it's a very vague concept, really. But I think the other thing that's important historically is that it's not just how much money you print, but it's what the public think of what it is you're doing. Do they trust you? Do they think you're on the right track or the wrong track? In other words, the V, the velocity, partly depends on how the public rates you as a credible monetary institution. So if you're doing stuff that seems to be overly experimental or overly peculiar, you may suddenly discover that what you thought was a relationship between money and the economy breaks down one way or the other. And I think a recent example of this, and I'm going to use a, this is not in the book, but I'm going to use it as a sort of strange analogy, which is to think about a, a referee in a soccer match. So in a soccer match, referees have basically two cards to punish people with. There's a yellow card, which is a booking, and a red card, which is a sending off. You don't want to get a red card because your team is reduced from 11 people to 10 people once the red card's issued. But imagine you've got two referees, one of whom never, ever issues yellow and red cards, and one of whom has a reputation for issuing yellow and red cards all the time. Now, my question here is, the players playing a match with the first referee are likely to behave very differently to the players playing in the match with the second referee, even though the rules of the game are identical in both cases. So, in other words, the people's behavior depends on whether the referee issues the cards or chooses not to issue the cards, whether the cards are a threat or not, as the case may be. And I think that during this last two or three year period, some central banks behaved like the the sort of hawkish referee who issues yellow and red cards all the time. And some didn't. I think the Federal Reserve, to its credit, eventually did get there because although the transitory argument was used throughout 2021, by the end of that year and subsequently, I think Jay Powell and his colleagues basically saying, we're going to raise rates and we're going to raise them by more. So we haven't just issued one yellow card, we're going to issue many more of them. Don't worry, we're serious about this. Whereas the Bank of England tended to carry on arguing that the inflation was merely temporary. So effectively, when you do that, you're saying, okay, I've issued one yellow card, but I'm not going to issue any more because the inflation is temporary. So why should I? So if the public are expecting you to react to the inflation by raising interest rates and you choose not to, then under those circumstances, the public's behavior begins to change. And I think that particularly in the UK, 
and more so than the US perhaps, there is evidence of the public's behavior changing. One example of this is that we've seen an extraordinary acceleration in wage growth in the UK. Now, wage price spirals were supposed to be buried in the 1970s. They were supposedly all about powerful unions demanding high wage increases and threatening to strike all the time. And it's true that we've had a few strikes in the UK recently, but nothing like what we saw in the 1970s. Nevertheless, wage growth has strongly accelerated. So I would argue that this is partly to do with the idea the Bank of England was the sort of soft referee who chose not to raise rates or chose not to issue yellow cards, and the Federal Reserve turned out to be slightly tougher. It's not just expectations about inflation, it's also are your expectations about how a central bank should behave, are those being met? And if they're not being met, does your behavior then change in the light of how the central bank has interpreted events? So then with the rapid increase in the money supply that took place, right, in recent years, without any corresponding increase in inflation, did this lead central bankers to think that they had severed the connection, right? That they had figured out a way to manage expectations in a way that would essentially counteract any impact that money supply might have? Well, first of all, it's worth noting that the money-free relationship has not been great, but as I said, if you look at the numbers in 2020, they were totally off the scale. And it's interesting that shortly afterwards, inflation begins to surprise on the upside. So it's almost as if if you have minor changes in monetary growth, it has no importance whatsoever for inflation. But if you have really major changes, then maybe it does matter. And I think that's what we discovered. But it's certainly true that in previous episodes, the relationship was poor, partly because there's a huge amount of financial innovation. So what was and what wasn't money was unclear. That was awkward. And partly because of what's called Goodhart's law after the great British economist Charles Goodhart, basically saying that once you try to control something to meet another particular objective, the relationship between your control and your objective begins to break down. And so there had been a reasonable relationship between money and inflation in earlier decades. But once monetary targeting started, it all broke down. So it's a bit like sort of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, I think, in the sense that once you start to observe something, its behavior begins to change. And in this case, once you try to control something, its behavior starts to change. So I, I would not be an advocate of saying, yeah, you should target money supply as a, an intermediate target for controlling inflation. I would simply say you should use money as one of the tests, one of the ways of thinking about whether you've got a problem. And I, I think when you come back to this idea of central bank complacency, really, you had for too many years central bankers building models of inflation, forecasting inflation, which had a sort of an assumption built into those models, which was self-serving. Basically, the model said, we think we're credible. We're going to assume the public think we're credible. If the public think we're credible, they have no reason to think that inflation will be any different from 2% in two years' time. And if we plug that into our model, that the public think we're credible, then, hey, presto, we'll be at 2% in two years' time. So actually, a lot of the work was being done by an assumption that said the public believe in what the central bank is doing and believe that the central bank has the power and the inclination to deliver the right outcome. And that was fine during the period of the great moderation, the period of low inflation, imported deflation from elsewhere in the world, because everything was so incredibly easy. What wasn't tested during that period is what happens when 
the world as a whole begins to shift in another direction. You as an individual country have no real control over that. And then it turns out that the inflationary outcomes are fundamentally different from what you had expected. How do you then explain it to the public? And can you keep the public on side in those circumstances? And it was Mervyn King, the former governor of Bank of England, who I think gave a speech a couple of years back where he was comparing central bankers with King Canute. King Canute, the famous Anglo-Saxon. He was Danish. I think he was Danish. Yeah, Danish probably, yeah. So Anglo-Saxon, Danish, whatever. It's all pretty close. Viking, whatever. Anyway, he was taken down to the shoreline to try to command the tides not to come in, the waves not to come in. And of course, he ended up getting wet feet. And Mervyn King's point was, it's all very well saying and asserting that something won't happen. But assertion itself is not good enough. You need a theory as to why it's not going to happen. And it turns out the theory they were using for King Canute was rubbish because the idea that King Canute had the power of God in him because he was the monarch was absurd. It was a rubbish theory. And the same thing might go for central bankers to the extent that by assuming that the public are always on side, they always get the right answer. Now, to be fair, it was a perfectly reasonable working assumption for 25, 30 years, but it wasn't properly tested until recently. And when it was tested, it turned out that the models didn't work very well. Right. So it's like if you say, if you commit a crime, we're going to arrest you. And so you're not going to commit the crime because you believe I'm going to arrest you. But no one actually tested it, right? Until people start committing crimes that are not arrested. And you think, oh, that didn't work very well after all. I think it was Bill Clinton who said that if he could come back to another life, he'd come back as the bond market because the bond market had more power than the president. The bond market lost a lot of its power because of quantitative easing. So did quantitative easing more or less disable the sensors that central bankers used to figure out what was happening out in the world? I think this is something that wasn't recognized at the time, partly because there was such an urgency to deal with deflation rather than inflation. You've got to bear in mind that QE was first adopted just after the global financial crisis. In fact, in response to the global financial crisis, there was a fear that with interest rates at zero, there was nothing more that central banks could do. So you back into the kind of 1930s debt deflation fears. So you had to do something, and QE was something you could do. So basically, you go out, you buy government debt, government bonds of varying maturities. In the case of the US, the Federal Reserve bought a much wider range of assets than were purchased by other central banks. But the general idea was to try to influence the yield curve, to try to influence capital markets more broadly, try to push asset prices higher in the hope that by doing so, companies could raise funds via the capital markets rather than depending on banks that were nursing their wounds from, from the global financial crisis. So it was an attempt really to try to steer money through the economy in a sort of different way from what had been traditionally the case. So that all sounded perfectly fine. But the problem is if you continue with QE indefinitely, which is what central banks did, you are stopping the bond markets from working in their usual way. And what I mean by that is, is that bond markets are a kind of early warning indicator. They're not designed to be like this, but they work like this in the sense that if a country is taking an inflationary risk, bond investors will demand some compensation for that risk, so yields will tend to rise. So a rise in bond yields, other things being equal, might indicate that inflation might be a bigger problem. The same applies to fiscal policy, that if there's a sense that the government might be borrowing too much, other things being equal, again, bond yields might rise. In response to that, the idea was that you could use the bond market as a kind of early warning sign of a need to adjust policy one way or the other. But effectively, QE stopped it from working. And it wasn't just the fact that QE existed. It was the fact that 
people began to think, well, these are 10-year bonds. So even if QE stops for a year or two, come the next recession, they're back to QE again. So I'm still worth holding my bonds for the 10-year period. So yields remain low persistently. And then, of course, because yields are low, when, the, when inflation first picks up, because bond markets can't react to it, uh, yields remain low. And then central bankers say, well, yields are low, therefore inflation expectations are well anchored, and therefore this inflation must be temporary. But it's not well anchored. It's the fact that the signal doesn't work anymore because you, the central bank, have stopped it from working. The consequence of all this is that you end up with central banks who are flying blind. So I think I used an example somewhere in the book of having a radar system. So you've got this radar system and you, you reach a peace accord with your neighbor who has, let's say, rather aggressive towards you. So as part of the peace accord, you turn your radar system off. But of course, that means that when the enemy decides or your neighbor decides to attack you again, you're not aware of the attack until it's far too late. And I think that is something which central banks have suffered from. They kept watching bond markets and saying yields haven't risen yet, therefore everything must be well behaved. But it was the central banks themselves through QE that were preventing those bond yields from rising until it was too late. I mean, obviously bond yields have risen a long way now, but that's partly because we now know that the inflation is much more embedded than appeared to be the case maybe a couple of years ago. Now, you talk about how you know governments are the major beneficiaries of inflation because they can inflate away the value of their long-term fixed-rate debt. But it seems like the major creditor of the government is the Federal Reserve, right? Which is part of the government. And so th does that change the calculus somewhat? Because when you look at the combined balance sheet, they now are financing themselves with a whole lot of floating rate debt through the reserves. Does that change the incentive somewhat? So two things that happen. The first one is that if you do an awful lot of QE, I mean, this is quite a technical argument, but effectively you shorten the maturity structure of overall public debt, which is another way of saying that when the central bank raises interest rates, it has a bigger immediate impact on debt service costs for the government than would otherwise be the case. And that means, of course, that fiscal plans are much more sensitive to changes in, in interest rates than would have been the case previously. Now, of course, if you're cutting interest rates, that's a windfall gain for governments. That's all lovely and happy. But if you're raising interest rates, it's a windfall loss. So it has consequences in terms of tax revenues and public spending in the future. So that is itself a potentially big issue. The other big issue, frankly, is that when you look at government debt and how much it's risen since the global financial crisis, this is not just true of the US, it's true of most Western developed countries. It's risen at a pace you never really see other than during wartime. War typically is very inflationary. Now, I would suggest that one reason why this happened, it's not the only reason, but one reason why it happened was because QE existed and therefore the punishment for borrowing a lot more was lower than it had been in the past. You didn't have to worry about a sudden run on the bond market because effectively the central bank was propping you up. So it may well be the case that government debt is higher than it would otherwise have been. And in the book, I describe this in a sort of Hollywood fashion, invoking Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. I discovered actually that for the younger generation, they don't even know who Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor were. So you could probably use Ben Affleck and J-Lo or something like that. Kanye and Kim. Yeah, maybe Kanye and Kim. I don't know. But Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, famous, glamorous couple of the 1960s, got married then got divorced, then got married again, then got divorced. And, and then it turns out that just before he died, he wrote a final letter to Elizabeth Taylor, kind of love letter, 
which allegedly she took to her grave when she died. Now, the point about this relationship is on, it's off, it's on, it's off. But we've often thought about in recent years, because of independent central banks, that monetary and fiscal policy are completely separate from one another. That There's no connection at all. So this is effectively the equivalent of the divorce stage between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. But the reality historically is that these things always come back together one way or the other. And I would argue that QE is a mechanism that has actually allowed this relationship to be rebuilt. The fact that it's a central bank that's buying government debt, the fact that yields are lower than they otherwise would be, the fact that government debt has risen hugely. These are the beginnings of a return of the kind of fiscal dominance from the 1970s and other periods, which frankly is not helpful in terms of controlling inflation. Now, it seems like running a central bank is more like driving a boat than a car. You know, you can't just rely on the signals that are coming in, right, and react to them very quickly. There, there's this delay, there's this lag. And the indicators that bankers are using to set policy, like the famous Taylor rule, there's a lagging indicator element, and then there's sort of a forecasting element. It seems like if you rely entirely on the real-time indicators or lagging indicators, by the time you take action, it's going to be too late. So the only way to really set policy is you have to have good forecasting models, right? You have to be able to, as you say, time travel. What's the problem there? Are we any better at this now than we were before decades of macroeconomic theory? The honest answer is I think we're nothing like as good as we should be or hope to be. And I think the sort of forecast targeting approach that's been very popular among central bankers only work because we appear to be in a relatively stable economic environment. What you couldn't do easily was to say, what happens if the environment is destabilized? How should we then think about the future? The Bank of England publishes forecasts every three months or so. And you can look at these forecasts and say, well, how successful were they in terms of projecting inflation into the future? And the answer is, it doesn't matter what was happening on that particular day or that particular month. And they were always forecasting inflation to hit target or be at target in two years' time. Now, that's partly because of the way in which things are set up. If you say that your inflation target is 2% and you say that monetary policy works with a lag of between 18 and 24 months, and you say you're fully in control of monetary policy, then you're going to forecast inflation to be at 2%. And what else can you do? And I think there's a flaw, really, in how we think about things. I personally would come back to the idea that we should not just think about the forecast, but also to think about what is surprising us currently. In other words, are things proving to be different from where we thought they would be? Is there a consistency in that difference? Is there a bias, if you like? And if there is, might that suggest that the model we've got is wrong? So what's striking here is if you go back to the early months of 2021, inflation was persistently surprising on the upside, not just in the US, but also in the Eurozone in the UK. And not only was it surprising on the upside, but as the months went by, it began to surprise across a wider range of items. So first of all, it was things like the secondhand cars and semiconductors and so on. But much later that year, it was an awful lot of other things. Now, standard economic models would have said this shouldn't be happening because our activity had been dramatically depressed as a consequence of lockdowns and collapses in GDP. And standard models would have said Demand is so weak that inflation is going to be, if anything, lower than it expected rather than higher. But it was higher. Well, if it was higher, either there was some peculiar disturbance or the pandemic was doing much more damage to the supply side performance of the economy than the demand side of the economy. Well, that wouldn't be surprising because we 
paid a lot of people to not work. If you pay people not to work, you're going to have an imbalance between demand and supply. I'm totally with you. But what's surprising is that very little of this actually entered into central bank discourse at the time. In other words, because the models were saying inflation should be remain low and inflation was higher, it was easier to say this is just a series of short-run disturbances which had no relevance where we would be further out. And I think that was intellectually lazy, frankly. I think that there should have been a few voices saying, maybe this is not quite right. Now, to be fair, outside of the central banking communities, those voices were being heard. In the US, you had Larry Summers and Jason Furman talking about the possibility of higher inflation. In the UK, Martin Wolf, the chief economics commentator at the FT, was talking about the risks of inflation. A few others were doing so as well, including myself. But what's striking is that within the policymaking circles, there was just no willingness to admit that this might be a problem. So it was like there was a, a weird kind of complacent consensus that said that whatever happens, we're totally in control of inflation. It can't possibly go wrong. So I think that if you're seeing persistent biases coming through relative to expectations, then it's time to sit back and say, what could we be getting wrong? And where are the risks? Now, again, it, some central banks got it earlier than others. In August of 2021, Federal Reserve was using the transitory language. By October, I think Jay Powell had decided to abolish the word. People do learn from their experiences and behave differently. But I, I think the idea that you simply do a forecast and that's good enough to tell you where policy should be today, that I think is not good enough. You need to also think about, first of all, how the forecast itself can be wrong. What's the range around the forecast? Secondly, to think about what is happening elsewhere in the world. And I think too many central bankers focus on their own country and don't think about what's happening elsewhere. They think of elsewhere as being a given, which it often isn't. Everything is simultaneously determined. And as I say, I think if you're seeing these persistent errors in one direction, then you ought to sit up and provide a decent explanation for it. Do you think that the need to publicly forecast and an awareness that the public forecast is going to enter into that feedback loop is what drives the internal forecast to be inaccurate. You could imagine a world where you have an internal forecast where you're saying, oh crap, these are some serious indicators. Your public forecast is keep calm. It's all good because if you announce that you think you're going to have high inflation, that's going to necessarily increase inflationary expectations. No, I agree. I think it's very difficult for a central bank to stand up and say, by the way, our job is to control inflation, but we're forecasting inflation at 5% in two years' time. It doesn't look very credible. There are ways around this. One way would be to say that you have a central bank as a policymaking institution, and you have a separate independent forecasting institution. So the forecasting institution says, we think inflation is going to be at 5%. And then the policymaking institution says, okay, that's your forecast. So what do we have to do to try to bend inflation down from 5%? And then you could reasonably say, over what time period should we bend it down from 5%? So rather than say it's absolutely going to be at 2% in two years' time, it's actually the costs of doing that are quite high. Therefore, we're going to aim for, I don't know, 3.5% in two years' time, and then 2.5% in three years' time. And you can have a debate about how quickly you get to what you're doing. That, that's one way you could do it. And actually, there is a corollary here, which is that in the UK, we have this thing called the Office for Budget Responsibility, which effectively is a sort of independent fiscal watchdog that comes up with forecasts for the economy and for the fiscal numbers, which imposes a constraint on what the finance minister, the chancellor of the Exchequer, can do. It's a relatively new arrangement, but in the old days, the chancellor would typically come up with an economic forecast that made his numbers add up. They would come up with 
growth numbers and inflation numbers that were perfect from the point of view of satisfying their fiscal ambitions. But that doesn't happen anymore. So there are ways you could do it if you put your mind to it. Well, look, you offer up 14 urgent lessons. And I think the most important insight is that we do need central banks that are independent and they also need to be credible. Do you think that we will be entering into a new era where the central banks reassert their independence and reestablish their credibility? Do you think that recent actions on the part of central bankers are hoping to advance those goals? I think the Fed certainly is. I think the Jay Powell is terrified of being Arthur Burns rather than Paul Volcker. So he's doing his best to stop that sort of Burns-type outcome from happening. Of course, I think it was Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, who was asked about uh, what can disrupt plans. He said, I think in response to a rather patronizing way was, events, dear boy, events, was the answer. And so, yeah, you could be a lucky central banker, you could be an unlucky central banker, depending on what sort of circumstances you're having to face. But I think that where inflation is relatively high and where economic growth is relatively low, it's going to be a very interesting situation to monitor over the next three or four years to see whether central banks, first of all, are able to reassert their sort of independence, and secondly, whether politically they can get away with it and have the legitimacy to do so. And frankly, an easier way to, to deal with all this is to say, we think the inflation is transitory or temporary, we think it will go away, and therefore not raise interest rates far enough because you're terrified of having a recession. But by not raising interest rates far enough, you actually allow inflation to fester, that it becomes part of the narrative. The worst thing that can happen for a central bank really is that they simply fail to deliver on their mandate and fail over a number of years. And eventually people will say either it's not worth having independence or that the people who are there are deemed to be incompetent in one way or another. But this, I, frankly, I think is the biggest challenge that central bankers have faced in decades. I think it's, in some ways, it's a much more existential challenge than was true of the global financial crisis, because that you could blame in all sorts of things, and it wasn't necessarily the fault of the central bankers themselves. And to be fair, in many cases, they came out of it looking very good because they helped to save the system. This time around, it's much more awkward because we've got relatively low rates of growth around the world. Living standards aren't rising as quickly as they were. We've been through a terrible experience with the pandemic, and people in parts of Europe are going through a terrible experience because of war and the consequences for energy prices and so on. Trying to get to grips with inflation, which is frankly a typically a painful experience, when all this other stuff is going on, I think it's, a, it's the biggest challenge that central bankers have faced in decades. Steve, thanks so much for joining me. The, the book is fascinating. You ground everything in history, which of course I like. And these 14 urgent lessons, I think you could argue that they're 14 historical lessons as well. So, oh, absolutely, yes. Yes, and so I think it's a plea for economists and macroeconomists in particular, monetary economists in particular, to refresh their knowledge of history. <laughs> it will inform their policy going forward. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.